This is the Microsoft Cloud Show, episode 311. CJ and I are going to cover a little bit of cloud news and explore the latest updates with Microsoft Application Insights V2, recorded live July 11th, 2019. For those of us familiar with ShareGate, we know that they've always been about SharePoint and Office 365 migration. But now that we've all moved to the cloud, like me, you're probably thinking, how about how to scale your Office 365 to a full self-serve environment without worrying about thousands of groups and teams popping up out of nowhere, AKA Sprawl. That's why the folks at ShareGate developed ShareGate Apricot. It's a solution that helps us automate our Office 365 group's governance by allowing us to collaborate with users to keep everyone accountable for the things they create. Their super simple to use in-app experience lets us lighten our load by delegating group management responsibilities to users we trust, AKA no more Sprawl. Want to get your hands on ShareGate Apricot? Try it for free for 30 days at sharegate.com slash college show. Hey, hey, CJ, how's it going this morning? Very well. How about you? I'm just sorry this afternoon, but yeah, it's going good for me. <laughs> it's going good. We uh, These weeks are weird for us. For our listeners, we recorded on Monday of this week which was just four days ago. And then we were recording again on third, which is not our normal time. We didn't record last week due to the July 4th holiday. I know you're listening to this. You're probably like, wait a minute. That was like two weeks ago. And yes, Yes. time shifting is great. This is being recorded on July the 11th on a Thursday, which is what we normally do. But the other show we had done was just a few days ago. So we had a, we say, what have you been up to? Because you and I have been playing with DNS for the last, the last hour. Yeah. DNS Um, and SSL. Joy. Fun with DNS, SSL, and Cloudflare, but... It's always an SSL problem, right? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I'm glad you understand a little bit better than I do what's going on because I'm a little lost. But um, yeah, we're we're in the midst of, in the final throes of being able to migrate our site or launch our new site that is a, a static site hosted on Azure blobs and Azure static sites and generated with Hugo or Go Hugo and getting away from Orchard, which... uh, Site is how fast it is. Yeah, it's going to be nice to get off it. We're very, very close. It's very cool. So we've got a handful. We don't have a ton of news because, well, we just, a couple days ago, we just met and we just did some news. Yeah. (laughs) A little stuff we're going to run through today. I'm going to talk a little bit about a little feature explore on the latest update with Microsoft Application Insights, specifically the JavaScript SDK and some cool new features that they've added to this that we can take advantage of. But before we do that, we got a little bit of stuff we want to kind of throw around before we jump into the yeah. news. And one of those things is we have some really good listeners who are very concerned about us. We got multiple comments on Facebook, multiple comments on Twitter. I got emails. We got a whole bunch of stuff. And everyone's like, hey, heads up. You guys know that Zoom isn't very secure, right? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. This week, there was some news that came out um, post that was published about about a aspect of Zoom, the meeting software that we use to record the, the show and many millions of people use around the world, about a certain thing that they did in a way that it was built that this researcher or person that found this didn't agree with. And um, I found it really interesting. So for those of you who are not familiar with what happened, Zoom on their Mac client, when you installed their application, installed a little service that kept running, even when you had uninstalled the Zoom client, which there was their first mistake, I think. You know, when you uninstall stuff, I think it's fairly reasonable that people assume you've actually uninstalled everything. They installed a little web service that sat there and kept running. 
And so what's interesting about it is when you click on a Zoom link to open a meeting, the user experience, and I'll, I'll admit, like, when I've clicked on it, clicked on those links, the experience is fantastic, right? You click on the link, it opens a browser very quickly and then starts your Zoom meeting without any user interaction, which mm -hmm. I thought was fantastic. Mm -hmm. But in hindsight, you look back and you go like, well, this guy looked back at it and went, well, how are they doing that? Because that shouldn't be possible to launch an application from a browser without any user interaction. So they looked into it and it turns out that that little web service that that Zoom installs is responsible for launching the application. And what they do is on the web page that they visit, they put a little image tag on the page and that image tag, the address for the image that it's looking up is to localhost where your web server service is running, where the Zoom web service is running. And they send it instructions, quite interestingly, by requesting an image of different sizes of pixels. So if it's like a one by one or if it's a one by four, it gets a it means that it's installing the application and things like that. Anyway, so they put this image tag on the page and so it goes and requests the image from localhost, which calls the local web service. The local web service will then launch the Zoom client, passing it the right information about the meeting, and it will automatically join you to the meeting with your webcam enabled in this case. And so I checked out the I check, checked out the the repro, I guess for want of a better word, and I clicked the link and it joined me straight into this researcher's meeting and I was in, with my webcam on and I was chatting to them without any, hey, would you like to join this meeting or any security prompt from the browser to say, this website's trying to launch this application, mm -hmm. stuff like that. So yeah, bottom line is they were, I mean, it was an amazing user experience, but they were kind of doing it in a way that some people would say is... Um, quite insecure and just potentially a bit devious, really. Yeah, once they figured out how it was being done, mm. then anybody who wanted to be able to launch the Zoom client yeah. to turn on your browser, turn on your, your video, anybody could do it. And yep. I think that yep. one, of the, one of the problems that they highlighted with it too was that one way to avoid it from happening is to turn off your video to automatically enable, go enabled when you join a meeting. Yeah. Which, I mean, it kind of, I don't know, I've always been of the mindset that any meeting software, you should sure. not join with your microphone on and your, meet, and your video on. I think uh, the, the bigger issue though is like, it's not so much that stuff for me. Like, okay, yeah, I can change that setting and things. His point was, if somebody was able to find an exploit in that web service, it's a huge attack vector. Right. Yeah. And I suspect this is not the first time somebody's found this, right? It's just mm. this is the first time somebody's published it. So if somebody managed to find a vulnerability in that web service, then all it would mean for exploiting it is getting me putting an image tag on a website and then getting you to visit that website and I could pwn your machine if I could find an exploit in that web service. Yeah. It's just a big gaping attack vector. Now you could argue that it's not really Zoom's fault. I immediately thought, well, like how on earth can you call localhost from a website that's not running on localhost? And it turns out that cause, for example, is not enabled in browsers, most browsers, for localhost connections. Mm -hmm. And so like the cross-site scripting security boundary stuff that gets built into browsers doesn't apply when it's calling localhost. And so that's why the browser doesn't prompt you and say, hey, this thing's trying to do something malicious because it's running on localhost, which I thought was really interesting. 
And you look into it and like, there's a, been a bug being open in Chrome about this since 2010, about cores with localhost, which I thought was fascinating. And the other really interesting takeaway is the other reason they were not forced to do this, but the other reason they opted to design it in this way was that Safari on a Mac doesn't support protocol handlers, right? So URI handlers. So they couldn't create a Zoom colon whack whack link mm -hmm. because people on a Mac that use Safari, when they click those, Safari doesn't know what to doesn't know how to launch applications. So personally, I think it's bad of Zoom to use this design because of the security aspects of it. But that said, I also don't necessarily think it's their fault and anybody could have built an application this way. And I do think it should have been up to the browser makers to block this from happening. Or, or Zoom should have fallen back to using protocol handlers the way Teams does, for example. Or I guess at a minimum to disclose what they were doing. Like, so people know about it because it, it's a, from the developer side of me, it's like, that's a cool little technique that you figured out to get this to work, to get around this stuff. But I mean, maybe I'm being a little too forgiving or naive, but I don't think none of this was done with a ignoring security from the Zoom point of view. It was more that we're trying to give a better user experience. And yes, in doing that, they did something that some people don't think that that's a, it's a secure thing. So It may have led to something bad, but as far as we know, it didn't. I guess the other part too was that they, they were notified of this back in March. When they went to go address it, they put an update out. I think it was on July the 8th. When the update that was supposed to address it didn't address it, yeah. the person who originally submitted it took issue with it, I think, and finally went, and went public with it. And then when they went public in Zoom, I think I do like the way that Zoom did react to it. Once they, maybe they didn't think it was as big of a deal as everyone else did, mm -hmm. but I give them at least some credit because the CEO jumped on a, a community chat to talk about the whole thing and explain. How did he do that? Did he just send people a link to click on? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he went to Yammer and created a Yammer thread so that nobody could find nobody him. Find but him. <laughs> the, the nice thing was well, he did go in there. They did. He did fess up. He was very transparent about it. And when they realized that you know everyone thought it was a big issue, they went in. They and that night on July the 9th, they posted an update that shut it down. I mean, I checked on it. I did. You know, the one thing I do find interesting about it. I did see one blog post or one tweet that someone that was called out in one of the articles about this. And a guy's like, you guys think that Zoom's the only one that does this? Check it out. And he had a list of all these other sites or all these other apps that do it. So he gave you a little script that you could run on your machine. Mm. And if again, this is mostly on the Mac side. So I ran it on my Mac and took a look at it. And sure enough, there's things like VPN clients and there's iTunes and there's other ones that have done the exact same thing or do something a very similar thing where they've got a little localhost web server that's running as well on a different yeah. port. And so he's calling those guys out. So I was like, I, a little surprised by that. Yeah, I think it feels like it's a combination of all the things adding up. Like, do those other apps also have, are they using image links to localhost to, to like install the app silently behind the scenes if you've uninstalled it? Stuff like that. Like it's not I don't think it's one of the things that they did. I think it's the cumulative effect of all of them together. Yeah, that's probably true. You know? True. Like I don't know if you uninstalled iTunes and then you clicked an iTunes link, would it would it reinstall iTunes for you and then launch it? I don't, you know? I don't know. You already installed iTunes under duress anyway, so it's not like you're <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully true. though it's going away. It's very true. <laughs> very true. 
yeah. yeah, anyway, quite interesting. But yeah, they have they have dealt with it well now. I just I felt like his issue was like, come on, guys, like I know you don't agree with me, but I think if you go ask anybody in, in the security field if this is a good idea, they'd say no. Yeah. In other news, did you see Microsoft's opened a pretty sweet store in London? In fact, I think it's opening today. No way. Yeah, and it's the biggest Microsoft store to date. It's over three floors. Oh my goodness. Yeah, amazing. There's a new flagship store in London, so you can go check it out as of today, I believe. Three floors, basically everything that Microsoft sells, and they have a McLaren Center that's hooked up to Forza that you can go sit in and play Forza in a real McLaren Center. All right, I'm going to repeat what I said to you. I'm going to repeat what I said to you when, when, when you showed me this. Yeah. Do they give you a, um, a fire extinguisher at the same time? <laughs> it's kind of an inside joke. For anybody that knows what's going on with centers, they have a tendency to self-immolate right now. <laughs> they yeah, seem to be dropping like, like flies. And you definitely want to put the fire out quickly because apparently McLaren is not very good at honoring the fact that, oh, this is a problem, we'll get you a new one. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've only got about a year left of this problem before they run out of centers. <laughs> so in 365 more days, there'll be no more centers in the world because at the moment it's running at about one, one per day or something ridiculous. Yeah. It's crazy. Yep. Anyway, they've got one. I'm not sure if it's an actual full car. It, I mean, it is the full car, but it, I don't know if it's got the engine. I don't, know if it, I don't know if it's a real center. You know, It's certainly the body and the chassis and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, it's pretty sweet. You can go sit in one and play Forza, which I thought was kind of cool. That's the ultimate racing seat. Seriously, right? Yeah, that's cool. Isn't that? Yeah, that's really nice. Awesome. Well, we do have a handful of news things that we do want to cover. So before we do that, though, let's hear from two of our great sponsors, Raygun and Avpoint, and we will be right back. Struggling to reproduce problems in your code base? Successful software starts with Raygun. Raygun provides application performance monitoring unlike anything that you've experienced before, offering greater clarity around how your software is performing for your customers than any other APM provider. Easily detect and diagnose issues impacting end users and monitor every part of your stack in one place. It's time to get back to building great software instead of fighting it. Start your journey to better software quality and try Raygun for free at raygun.com today. The 99.9% SLA means you're protected from power outages, bad patches, natural disasters, maybe even a dinosaur attack. Does it protect you from yourself though? Avpoint Backup for SharePoint Online provides full fidelity backup and recovery from individual items to entire team sites. Avpoint can run backups up to four times a day to ensure your data is secure. Recover anytime you want without having to pick up the phone and schedule restore windows. Learn why Avpoint is the Microsoft Cloud expert at www.avpoint.com. All right, CJ, we have a collection of a few Azure-related things and a few Microsoft news-related things. And Mm. two of the Microsoft-related news things we're not going to spend a lot of time on these. I just want to kind of call them out because I thought it's I thought it was kind of interesting. It does kind of, you know, signify a bit of a milestone with the company. Mm-hmm. Both of these are ZDNet articles and it's related to Microsoft switching their fiscal year or moving into the new fiscal year which was on July the 1st. And uh, the first article is Microsoft wants to start marketing Microsoft 365 as a single product service and they had a reorg. And the reorg it means that some people's jobs are well, it means about, I think it's about 200 people's jobs are disappearing. So some people are being assigned to do 
different things. Some people are being given the opportunity to find other jobs and some people are just being let go. And so what this is really showing is that how Microsoft is really treating their business, Microsoft 365, they don't want to sell, they don't want to focus on Windows licenses. They want, and they don't want to focus on individual products. They want to sell as a service as a whole. And then you can, based on the license that you get, you get access to different products. It's very, I mean, this is so different from the years past when licensing was uh, such a black, I guess it's not too clean or too, um, makes too much sense. We're going to talk a little bit about that next week with some stuff that's being announced that and it's probably going to be announced. Yeah. In the but part of this too, I mean, they're, with this whole, the reorg is that they're effectively getting rid of a, a service called the modern desktop TSPs. So people are no longer, if you sold Windows and that was your job, Windows desktop client, that job doesn't exist anymore. They don't mm. want to focus on it. This is an incredibly savvy approach, I think. that. So Microsoft, I firmly believe that Microsoft is the best example of a traditional software company making the transition to SaaS, right? And they've literally converted tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars from perpetual licenses to reoccurring revenue, which is a monumental effort. But this next step, so they did that with Office 365, obviously, and Office. This next step is cunning because, like, if you think about it, the desktop market share of Windows is slowly being whittled away. Mm. Or their licensing revenue, not the not the units, right? They're still shipping more units. Windows is still growing, but like slowly, they're going to make less and less money off it. And so, this is a long term play to get you to get incrementally more subscription revenue out of each person they've sold a subscription to, right? And preserve it, and basically slowly replacing that Windows licensing revenue over time. And so, this might take them ten years, right? It might take five, ten years, but if they can get all of those people with subscriptions to incrementally pay just a little bit more than they're winning in the long term. And it's a cunning financial financial move that will pay dividends in the long term. At the moment, it feels weird. Like, it doesn't make sense to me to buy a subscription for Windows. But hey, eventually, when it comes to renew, they'll be like, well, pay five bucks more per year or whatever, or whatever it happens to be, or per month, or whatever it happens to be for your Uber Premium Plus Plus live enterprise hailstorm edition and, <laughs> and you'll just get everything and you never have to think about upgrading windows again and all that and i'll be like yeah okay probably yeah that makes sense yeah you know and they've just won right they've just got you know incrementally slightly more revenue out of me mm-hmm. forever <laughs> it's an interesting approach i mean it really shows i agree with you i mean it, it shows how much the company has changed when you look at this and you remember going back to the year, back to the days when people were trying to sell Microsoft doing as a service instead of it, or software as a service instead of selling like licenses to effectively the CDs you're going to download or installers that you're going to download and then apply it and put your key in. I mean, it's just not, it's kind of surprising to me how fast a company this big has actually made this change. Mm-hmm. But incredibly quick. Uh, yeah. And just, so. I think I mentioned it on the show before, but. Amy Hood, who's the CFO, is just, I think, single-handedly responsible for Microsoft's success in this area. Maybe not single-handedly, but is responsible for Microsoft's success in this area. And I suspect this is her next step in that in that direction for getting people, getting their business more annual reoccurring revenue. I think it's going to work. Another Windows-related bit of news here. It's another article by ZDNet. This one is 
a little bit more on the controversial side. And it's related to a Windows 7 update that shipped just recently. So in this month's security only update. So if you remember Windows, when they do updates, they have two kinds of updates. They have security updates and then they have like feature updates or update packages of uh, yeah. things like security only updates and then other stuff that gets shipped as well. And in the security only updates, they're supposed to only include security updates, not quality fixes or diagnostic tools. They made this change about three years ago to do that, to have the update packages for Windows 7 and 8.1 have two distinct offerings. So yeah, so the monthly rollup of updates and fixes, and then also a security only update. So what's interesting about this one is an update that came out on July the 9th, and it's got, it's supposed to be a security only update, but it includes something called the compatibility appraiser. So this thing is supposed to only be used to identify issues that would prohibit someone from moving from updating a Windows 7 machine up to Windows 10. So a lot of people saw this and the words that specifically people are that are very security conscious and looking for transparency for Microsoft kind of flipping out about this because when you look at the files that are included in this security update and this thing that's supposed to just do this assessment, the word telemetry is showing up. And so people are wondering, like, wait a minute, is this like spyware? Mm-hmm. And so trying to figure out what's going on. Now, Microsoft is not. This apparently that when the people that did the research on it, people have gone through and looked at this stuff, they've confirmed this is not a mistake. This was intentional. Microsoft is not talking at all really about this because if there's any kind of a security update, they generally only want to talk about it in official release channels and stuff. And that's not what so responding to these different things is not a it's not something they want to do, but everyone's kind of like, "Hey, what the hell's going on with this?" I immediately oh. leapt to thinking maybe they're patching a hole in this analyzer. It is a security update, and then later on in Mary Jo's post, sure enough, she says, and I quote, "And it led me to a theory for why these mysterious files are shipping in an unexpected location. I strongly suspect that some part of the appraiser component on Windows Seven SP one." had a security issue of its own. <laughs> Oops. Oops. Hey, yeah. I don't know if it says anywhere in the fine print that the security updates have to fix security problems. Maybe they could be introducing some new ones. <laughs> <laughs> you hear that, Tim? Yeah. So, another bit of news that other people would find interesting. However, I do have two new things that I found, two interesting links here that are related to Azure products that we've got links for both of these in the show notes. So the first one is around this new feature that is now available in preview and it's called data share, Azure data share. So what is this? So it's basically a way through Azure for you to be able to share data with someone else and also to have a way to define like how it's intended to be used, how to kill it, do an audit of who's actually look, who actually has access to it. It's pretty cool. So effectively what you do is if you have Azure Blob Store or you have something like Azure Data Lake, What you can do is I can share some data with you and I can do it through a security principle. So like through an app that I create in Azure AD. What this is then going to allow me to be able to do to share this data with you, because you're outside of my organization, it allows me then to keep track of who I've shared this data with. So if I share it with multiple people, easier way to be able to see it. I can see how frequently you are receiving updates to the data. Because what happens is, is that if I go through and put, if I share like a blob with you, a blob store with you, and then I put more data in it, you are going to get notified and it's going to put 
those incremental snapshots is going to be able to copy that data to your subscription so you can see what those yeah. the changes that are, are going on. So if I put something up there, put a new piece of data up there, a new, a new uh, an update or, or new data, it'll allow you to pull the latest version of the data as needed or to just automatically receive incremental changes of the data as the way I've defined it. So cool new feature. There's a link to it in the show notes. If you want to take a look at it, you want to try it out because it's a preview feature. So it's something you have to end up turning on. The other bit of news though, that they've done, and this is, I wish that more people would do this. It's going to be a little chaotic. It's going to be interesting to see kind of how they go about this. But you know, over time, Microsoft has keeps adding new and new services. And each one of these services has their own API. And of course, someone has their own interpretation of how an API should work. And so... <laughs> what do you mean? You mean developers think they know best? Exactly. It's never happened. I don't know what you're so, talking about. Exactly. <laughs> so over time, what has happened is that we've got all these APIs for Azure and they don't really f- always file, uh, follow the same syntax, the same standards and stuff. And so what the Azure team has done is they've said, you know what? Here's what we're doing. We have taken all of your feedback and we are going to, we're rebuilding our APIs. We've defined a new API SDK standard for Azure SDKs. And they've started to go publish some of the uh, release notes for some of these new SDKs. So we've got Python, Java, JavaScript, and .NET. I like first part of the post, it goes into why are we doing this? And it just says, you know, we've, we've been going through a, ver- a period of rapid innovation on Azure's capabilities and learning how to best expose it to developers. Mm-hmm. And as certain things have adopted or things have been matured and been adopted by different, by different customers and things, they've learned a lot and they've been getting a lot of feedback. And they're like, you know what? Okay, we're going sta- to come up with a standard for all of our stuff that everyone can take advantage of and everybody can follow or that everybody can... can uh, uh, know that we're going to start going forward with it. So they've defined a bunch of things that they're changing. So being able to make sure that their APIs can evolve over time, but in a very compatible fashion, they're focusing very much, on, not just on creating the new APIs, but also at the same time, documentation and samples. And so they're all kind of kept in, in sync with each other. Also, how they're going to change creating these different libraries at their core. So, and they've listed out kind of what they're planning on doing and how you can how you can learn more about what they're doing it's just there. It's nice to see how much they're actually doing kind of a mea culpa and saying, all right, you know what? We get it. Things have been changing. We're going to try and keep things nice and clean. Yeah. I mean, it's good to do this, right? It's, I've always found the Azure SDKs quite, I guess, not hard to use is the wrong word, but just not optimal every time I've tried to use them. Yeah. I think putting a line in the sand and going, hey, we need to reset this and make a clean break and make some tough choices and sacrifice some backwards compatibility where we need to, to make our SDK is better, that's going to be a good thing for the developers. Yeah, I agree. I like the fact they're doing it. I mean, it's, this is a painful thing to go through, but it's it's nice. I mean, I, I wish that the SharePoint team would have gone back and said, I wish that you would re-engineer how you deal with, how you work with lists because we're still fundamentally using the same technology that, you know, going all the way back to SharePoint server f- from way back. And, you know, you've got that 5,000 item limit thing that keeps popping up on people and they've done work to go through and to mitigate that. But, I mean, at some point, it just kind of feels like, you know, you can only do so many renovations to a house until you finally decide it kind of makes sense to just build a new house. So, yeah, I agree. So that's just a bit of the news that we found in the past week. We're going to go back to doing a bit of a, uh, one of the features that we like to do on this podcast is to also highlight 
product features. And so I thought that I've been working with one, the new version of one, the new iteration of one, and uh, it didn't get a lot of fanfare. And so I thought that I would take some time to kind of explain it. But before we do that, let's hear from another one of our fantastic sponsors, Nintex. If you could score an extra hour or two back in your day, would you take it? Because our friends over at Nintex want to give you a gift, the gift of time. Seriously, if you haven't checked out what Nintex has to offer lately, you should. The platform built on Azure has evolved a lot. In just the past few months, the Nintex team has added new process mapping capabilities, and most recently, a new e-sign capability called Nintex Sign, powered by Adobe Sign. Nintex also continues to revolutionize products you know and trust, including Nintex Workflow and Forms. With the power of Nintex, it is faster and easier for you to configure, not code, giving you valuable time back every day to spend it however you want. Test drive the Nintex Process Cloud at Nintex.com. Okay, CJ, I know that we've talked on the podcast a little bit, or I have, about application insights, mm. product, uh, service from Microsoft. Do you use this in any of your stuff? No, well, not in Hyperfish stuff. So elsewhere in LiveTiles, we use application insights, but not on the Hyperfish product side of things. So I have very little experience with it, but I've been watching what Microsoft has been doing with it, and it seems to be, seems to be getting better and better. It seems to yeah. be heading in the right direction. I hear good things about it. So I know you've messed around with it quite a bit, right? And use it for Voitanos, things that you do. But uh, no, I haven't, I haven't ever used it in production. Yeah, so what this is, this is an application performance monitor. So people like to compare it to things like Google Analytics, but it, I don't think that's a fair comparison. There are things that Google Analytics is focused more on traffic acquisition, marketing, users, and stuff like that, where I think that Application Insights is more focused on the application itself. There are a lot of features inside of App Insights that have been added recently that do kind of mirror a lot of stuff that Google Analytics does. I really like the integrate the, what we have with App Insights. There are a lot of other products that are a lot of... It's a free product that Microsoft provides, or it's mostly free, uh, unless you, you know, use the bejesus out of it. And then you start paying a little bit. But there are a lot of other commercial products that are out there that do a lot of the same things that what App Insights does, but then they add a lot of additional value on top of it. A lot of commercial yeah. products like New Relic. Raygun. Raygun's one of our sponsors. Raygun does a fantastic job. They have an APM product. Exactly. Yeah. They do a fantastic job with it as well. One of the things that in App Insights, it runs like these other products as well. It runs on all these different stacks, .NET, Java. And the one that I focus on the most, though, is more on the client side, on the JavaScript side. And they recently, there have been some challenges that we've had with the JavaScript run. It's, it's run fine, but there's, they recently redid their SDK and made a few changes to the service itself as well that were, it was re-released. It was around build, so back in May, about two or three months ago. But the changes they've done, they haven't gotten a lot of press. And I'm in the middle of working on some stuff for my course for the Mastering the SharePoint Framework in Voitano's. And one of the chapters that I've always planned on doing was a telemetry chapter on how you can go through and measure stuff and using App Insights, not using... I don't want to go with one of the commercial ones. I don't want to push like a, a paid product. But the more I've kind of peeled back the onion on App Insights and specifically on the V2 instance, I've seen... They've done some stuff that's really slick that I wanted to call out. So mm-hmm. one of the challenges we always ran into with App Insights, so specifically in the context of SharePoint, a lot of times you're building something that's going to go into another platform. So I'm building a web part. And if I build a web part, like if you, if Hyperfish hires me to build a web part, I build a web part, I give it to you guys, you deploy it inside of your, your SharePoint online tenant, or if you had an on-prem tenant, you deploy it in there. 
one of the challenges we run into is that, you know, I, I don't own the entire experience where a lot of these different tools are, de are designed to own the entire experience. They do a lot of automatic telemetry tracking and acquisition and, and logging. So unhandled exceptions, stack traces, tracing information. So like the stuff you would normally put to like console.log, page views, stuff like that. And the challenge that we ran into is that with App Insights was always designed to kind of own the whole page, but not let you just own part of it. And so like a good example of this, in the Patterns and Practices group, we've got a suite of controls that an MVP, Elio Strofe, has created as really behind this project that is a bunch of React reusable controls that you can use if you're building a web part and using React. Of course, he wants to be able to track and see when are there bugs, when are there issues, and he wants to sure. be able to collect the data and be proactive about it. So he was using App Insights, but the problem was is that if I put App Insights in my SharePoint Online tenant, so if I deployed App Insights everywhere in my tenant, and it can do that using an extension, using an app customizer so that every page has it, and it's all logging the stuff to my App Insights instance. If I then used one of those controls that Elio had, and I put it inside of my web part and I deployed it to my tenant, I would have a problem. And the problem that I had was that Elio was, was logging all of his stuff in his app in, with App Insights to his App Insights instance and or the PMP instance, Whereas I was doing that for my tenant. And the problem would be is that one of us is going to win and is going to hijack the instance. And so I'm either going to take all of Ilio's telemetry from that control and send it to my App Insights instance so Ilio gotcha. doesn't get it. Or if Ilio's initialized after mine did, he would take over. And now all of my telemetry from my tenant is now going into his instance. Yeah, That's not gotcha. good. No, so no. What they did to get around that is they created a little proxy and stuff was sent they were posting stuff in, through a little proxy that would then log it server-side from an Azure function to his instance. So there would be no stealing of telemetry. Now, the downside to that is that you lose a lot of the automatic telemetry tracking and stuff and, and data acquisition. So like exceptions that, were run, that you were hitting and stuff, you lose all that yeah. um, because you'd have to basically recreate their API, which he didn't do. So one of the big things that they did in V2 is it gives us the ability to have multiple instances of App Insights on the page. And when you define your instance, there's an extra little thing you have to spe uh, specify. It's called a name prefix, but it basically sandboxes your instance of App Insights inside of the local storage in the browser and prefixes the cookies that are added so that now you don't need that little proxy thing anymore. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. That's kind of nice. So does that mean... It it's going to be easier for component vendors and developers to, yeah, basically just, just be able to capture what they're interested in for their particular component. Does this mean we're going to have like different web parts from different vendors all like loading app insights separately and publishing stuff separately and like overloading everything? So I almost was going to say yes. And then until you said the last thing, uh, no. So the way it works is that when you create a new instance of the control of the, the App Insights instance and you set the name prefix, your project, you can turn on and turn off what kinds of automatic tracking that you are going to receive and don't receive. I see. So there are certain things that are turned on by default, but you can also turn them off if you want in the configuration. Now, could we all go through and start, and start collecting all of this trace information individually? So you and me both build a web part, we deploy it to, and let's say we each are using Elio's little control, uh, one of his reusable controls, and we deploy it to the Contoso 
intranet. Mm-hmm. That could be four different app insights instances. There's yours for your web part, one for my web part, one for Contoso for the entire intranet, and then one that Elio has with the components that he's using, that we're using. And only one Java, only one instance of the SDK is going to get loaded on the page. It's only going to get downloaded once. Okay. The configuration of it, there will be four configurations of it added in the page. It's just four little global objects on the, on the page. Not a, big, not a big deal. And they could all be listening for unhandled exceptions and stuff like that. But you can limit it down to where you say, no, I'm not interested in all those. I just want to go through and trap our exceptions. So don't automatically log unhandled exceptions. Don't automatically log these other things. Only I can filter it down. So, And App Insights is also smart enough that whenever it does any of its post back, and it's done this since V1, whenever it logs any of that telemetry stuff back to the App Insights service in Azure, it does it on a separate thread. So it doesn't do anything blocking mm. and it batches up the request as well. So it keeps things nice and small. Mm. You, can, you can collect a ton of data, but you can also slim it down. Yeah, that's uh, nice. That's one big change that they made. Um, that's probably one of the biggest ones, but there's a couple other cool things here. And this is where things get really neat. I guess that's the biggest one for me. The other ones that we have, we also have a better API. So before the API was very much parameter based whenever you wanted to say like you wanted to trace a message or you wanted to trace an exception yeah. and you wanted to log all that stuff. Everything was very parameter based. Now you pass an object in. And so now it makes it much easier to only provide some values in these traces instead of submitting tons of, instead of having to go through and to have all these different overloads and sending a bunch of defaults. So I would, before it was a lot of call this method and this method would have seven parameters you had to pass in and I'd have like four of them would be null that I'm passing in. Now I don't have to worry about that. Now I just create an object and pass in the object. Yeah, gotcha. That's nice and clean. It is much cleaner. And then there's two or three other things I want to highlight here. So one is they have out-of-the-box URL tracking or navigation tracking with single-page apps. So for apps that Mm. use like a router that has like the little hash, uh, hash bang, you can turn that on so it automatically tracks those as separate pages. Mm. You have, uh, there's a concept called an initializer. And so what's cool about that is that that allows you to, whenever your code says, I want to track this event, you can have like a trigger that runs that says, I want to get that bit of data that we are going to send App Insights and I want to add additional stuff to it or I want to scrub mm-hmm. stuff. Gotcha. So it's like a so hook. It, it's like a hook, yeah. And yeah. so I have a, I have a thing in my, uh, in my class where I'm gonna, or my chapter in my course where I'm going to show how you can do that if you've got multiple web parts to where you can make sure the telemetry that's being logged is coming straight from your web part instead of from your entire like bundle that's going in. So how, kind of like sub to segment things. Now, there's two more things I want to highlight before we move on. So one of them is they've also created a slimmed down basic version of App Insights. So mm. let's say you don't want all of the automatic telemetry tracking and all that stuff. All you really want is this one method called track. So if you can tell that if on a site that uses App Insights, if you open up the developer tools, the browser developer tools, go to the network tab and filter on the word track, you will see there are a pair of, of, you can see how much data is being sent to App Insights. So that track method is being called by the things that track exceptions and track page views and logging messages and metrics. So the basic version, what it does is they've stripped out all the automatic collection of data. They've also stripped out all those methods for tracking exceptions and stuff. And now they just boil it down to just a simple track method. And 
you then are responsible for creating whatever you want. So what's nice about this... Yeah, so you get full that, control over exactly, exactly what goes to telemetry tracking. Gotcha. Yeah. So you get full control over the whole thing, which that's... That's a, really nice. I don't know. I wouldn't use this personally, but for people who do want to have a slimmed down version and, and the page weight is very important, it's an option. Yeah, gotcha. Now, the last one. This is cool. <laughs> brand new and this just came out like in the last couple of days and I'm still I'm still playing with this a bit and this is going to get even better. If you go to the the page that I'm going to um, have linked in the show notes, there's a screen uh, or a, an animated gif that shows this running. Uh, the section on the on the readme on the page is called source map support. So, when you deploy your app, you generally have everything minified and uglified, which means that your yeah. JavaScript you can't see. You've got a bunch of methods that are named A, B, C, bunch of parameters that are just a bunch of junk and you can't really tell what's going on. Yeah. And when an exception happens, the call stack is captured and it's sent to App Insights. But like in the picture that they show in the animation, mm. you see a boatload of references to where's this problem happening? It's happening in HTTP colon whack whack localhost port 5000 slash static slash JS dot blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Some huge line number. And in the past what we've done to get around that is we've actually shipped our, our source maps. In client side, you can open up a source map, find the right line, and recreate the stack trace. Mm. It's not a good thing to do client side. Right. Check this out. What they did is that now, if you still have those source maps, you can go over to the Azure portal, and in the little box where it shows the call stack, you can drag the source maps into that call stack box, and it replaces it with the actual lines of where those problems happen. So yeah, now that's pretty cool. To, you don't have to ship those things and include them in your bundles. Now you can just say, I only need that for developer purpose. Yeah. There's going to be a way in the future that they've talked about. I've kind of had a little bit of an exchange with the guy that is doing this. And uh, he said, you know, in the future, you'll be able to just have a configuration on your App Insights portal and say, that's where my source maps are. And it'll all right. pull those in. Yeah, I was going to say, like, why isn't it when you're looking at a stack an ugly stack and you want to make it a nice looking stack, why is it that you have to go get the maps and drag and drop them on there? I mean, it's nifty, but wouldn't it be cooler just to load, like point it to a thing that says load my source maps from here and just automatically do that all the time? Yeah, that's yeah. what, I mean, I think that's what Raygun does, right? Yeah. Raygun does something like that. So this is, it looks like they're moving in that direction. So yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, because man, the browser stack traces are just heinous, right? Because yeah. So many things happens to your code after you hit transpile button or whatever, right? Yeah. And it gets sort of compiled down and minified and uglified and all sorts of things. Yeah. <laughs> and then you can never find the code you wrote ever again. No, so no. yeah, this is super nice. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's cool. They've done a lot of work with it. I mean, it's, this was a chapter that I was supposed to have done in my course, honestly, about a month ago. But I just, the more I kind of, I was learning more about this and, I found a bug or two in it and told them about it. There's a cool like React plugin that they have that goes with it too, where it can, if you have a React app that you're going between different pages, it will, if you take the React component and you wrap it in a method, it will show you the, it'll go through and show you like how long have you been active in that component stuff, all in the metrics inside of the app insights. It's really, it's really slick. That for those of you who are wanting to do that kind of stuff in the SharePoint framework, my course is going to show that as well. The demo Sweet. does show it right now. So it's, it doesn't take a whole lot of work, but yeah, I kind of... Telemetry is like power to your house. It's kind of just one of those things you just got to have. Yeah. Got to have really good insight into what's going on in your software. And I, a lot of devs don't think about it until something goes wrong. And they go, man, I really wish I knew like what led up to that. Mm -hmm. 
and investing just even a little bit in good telemetry and monitoring and logging and things up front can save so much time. You sat in the sessions before at a presentation and you've built stuff and then you have that same question, but then you see what somebody else is, when somebody else is doing it right. Oh yeah. Look at what we detect, look what we want, you notice and you're like, God, I wish I could do that to my app. Man, I wish it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, yeah. Wow. We should really do that. I wish we have, I wish we got time to do that. Right? Yeah. I agree. Nice. Well, that's, they're coming a long way. Yeah, they really have. They've done a really good job with it. They've done a really, really good job with it. So some really cool stuff there. And the portal's getting better. And so for a free service, I, I mean, if I was sitting in yeah. Scott Guthrie's chair, I'd be pretty pissed because this is something that I would gladly pay for. I'm surprised they give this to us for free. Yeah, curious. Mm. Cool. Very so, nice. Hey, in the last few minutes we got in the show, want to do some picks? Yep. Awesome. Let's hear from some of our sponsors and then let's come back and do some picks. ACs Voitanos delivers on-demand video-based training for developers on the latest SharePoint extensibility model from Microsoft in his course, Mastering the SharePoint Framework. CJ's Hyperfish automates the collection of user profile information from users in organizational directories such as Office 365, SharePoint, Active Directory, and HR systems. The secure service supports on-premises, hybrid, and online environments. Bring your directory to life at hyperfish.com. CJ, do you have a pick for us this week? I do. It's slightly different. It's actually an, an app that you can get for Android and iOS, and it's called RoboKiller. Ooh. And I'm basically doing this as a public service to all of the listeners in the United States who are heading into an election season. Oh, God. <laughs> right? And last election, I don't know about you, but man, I got a bunch of calls, mm-hmm. right? Bunch of spammy, give us money, Political party X is basically trying to come into your house and steal your children. Don't let them by donating, basically. That's basically <laughs> what it boiled down to, right? I got this app called RoboKiller. I'd heard about it and it helps you block spam calls, right? It, we're not paid to say this. This is just an app I found. So yeah. I'm no way associated with this. So not only does it like block numbers that are known spam callers and things like that, but it can give you quite a lot of control. So if you get calls from particular numbers that it's not picking up as spam, you can mark them as blocked and it'll block those calls for you and it'll give you a log of all the calls that's blocked and, and you can allow or block them further and stuff. But the cool feature that I really like is this thing that they call AnswerBot, I think it is, or something like that. And so they can, when there's a spam caller picking up, calling you, you can pick a bot to answer your call <laughs> and, <laughs> and it'll talk to them and mess with them. And so, for example, let me see if I can get my mic here and play you one. Hold on. I need you to spell your name for me one more time, very slowly. All right. Wait, <laughs> it gets better. What's going on? What the hell was that? <laughs> okay, well, is he ma- does he know? You need to stall him. Give him a cracker. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that one was called Area 51. And at the beginning of it, it will basically start asking them how they got this number and that it's part of a secret military base and all this sort of stuff. And it just starts toying with them. Anyway, so you can answer the spammers and give them some of their own medicine, basically. That's awesome. That is so awesome. Time. <laughs> yeah, and so it's, I think they have a trial, but it's like 30 bucks for a year, which depends how much you get spam calls and stuff. But for me, I just despise them. And I'm happy to pay that money to block them versus donate to their child stealing programs. 
<laughs> yeah. The funny thing is you can also listen to the conversations that they have with the spammers as well, which is, I haven't actually had an most, opportunity to do that yet, but that's pretty sweet. That's probably the most entertaining part about it. Like how do they, how does it go and watching the spammers get all irritated and stuff? So yeah. Yeah, I like it. I really hope I get a call from, you know, one of those spammers that's trying to extract money out of you by by telling you that your Windows computer is unpatched yeah. and needs help. I really want to see what happens with one of them. I wonder how well it works. So the, I'm on AT&T and AT&T has a call protect app. Yeah, yeah. And so I want, it does a really good job. T-Mobile uh, has that as well that I'm on. It'll like mark calls as spam calls and stuff like that. Yeah. But it doesn't answer them and mess with them. And it doesn't give me control over adding numbers to it and all that. Like you can get quite strict. It'll say only only allow calls through from your contacts and all that sort of stuff if you really want to go to the full the full kahuna. But it also does that neighbor. They call it neighbor spamming where you'll get a call from a spammer but it'll look really similar to your own phone number. Yeah, I hate to that. To try and make it feel more familiar, right? Yeah. And it's just devious. Anyway... Give it a shot. It integrates pretty deeply with your telco provider, so you've got to give it some permissions, and it, you know, because they basically redirect calls through their service and things. Cool. Yeah. Anyway, Very cool. Pretty cunning. What do you got for us I'm this gonna, week? I'm gonna install that. Mine's an easy one. You know the Nintendo Switch? Yes. They get have one. Company. You do have a Switch? Well, I don't. My son Sam saved up for like two years or a year or something. To, and was doing lots of jobs for neighbors and friends and things to save up for a Switch, and he bought one. I was really... I've seen him on plane. I see people use them on a plane. They've been really appealing, but it, it's... I love games, and I love the idea of playing games, and then I go I go buy a game, and I find that I never end up playing it. Mm. And I'm just getting too busy, but... So, Nintendo Switch is coming out with a new one. Or mm. Nintendo's coming with a new Switch. It's called the Light Switch, or the... Switch Light. It's called the Light Switch. It's called... <laughs> <laughs> that's funny though so does it brighten up your day yeah pretty much it's just like a normal switch except it's more the form factor more the size of like a large like sony psp yeah i had one of those i still have one I yeah it doesn't have the detachable hand thingies right like yeah it does it doesn't hook up to a tv it doesn't have the detachable controllers it doesn't run on its own like the thing it's got a lot it, it think of the switch but Think of it in the context of like a Sony PSP, but yeah. it's also only two hundred bucks, so it's a lot less. Mm. I'm playing with the idea of getting a handful of these for um, Black Friday giveaways for my course. That's a good idea. Yeah, I might That's order a- eleven of them, and I need to get one just for myself to make sure that it works the way before I give my customers. So, well, you'd never tr- you'd never do that to your customers without trying the product first, would you? I mean, let's be honest. I don't think it's That's a just irresponsible. Do. <laughs> yeah, it's like the right thing to do. So yeah, they look really nice. If it if it helps sway you, we use ours a, or my son lets us use his a lot. Like with Zelda is a great game. I I've really enjoyed playing Zelda Breath of the Wild on the Switch. It's a great, fantastic game. Apparently, all the games work with it except for the ones that have a requirement for the like the vibration feedback and stuff. Gotcha. Only ones that don't work with it because if it has because they don't have like the the vibration controllers and but it's smaller. It's not as big as a big as a regular switch, so it doesn't feel like people have complained a little bit that it's a lot heavier. It's it's, he- it's fairly heavy. Anyway, yeah, mm, very cool. That's a great idea. So I'm playing with that now. We do have a listener pick. This is really slick. The video is really cool. Michael Johansson from Malmo, Sweden, sent this one in, and he found it on Reddit. 
which big kudos. That's why I picked it because he, he sent me a Reddit link. I feel like you and I, I feel like you and I are the only two that really use Reddit. Yeah. There's only us in the world. Yeah. And well, then there's a whole <laughs> other people. There's nobody else I talk to that uses Reddit. So this is a post from the uh, subreddit Azure. And it's uh, by a guy about that posted a couple of days ago. This would have been what, July the 8th, I think, where a bunch of friends, they launched a weather balloon to 110,000 feet in Pahonix, sorry, Phoenix, using, <laughs> do you know the joke to that? Were you around when no. that ad came out? No, I don't even know what you're talking about. He came in, he went into a FedEx store and he was like, I need to mail something. Where do you want to mail it? He goes, Pahonix. They go, <laughs> like, no, no, Pahonix. Pahonix. <laughs> <laughs> but he used it, he said they launched it using Azure. I'm like, I don't think they used Azure to launch it, but it's, they incorporated it. They used Azure IoT reference architecture with their balloon and reference hmm. tracker devices running Azure IoT Edge. It's really slick because they said they were really surprised at how well the launch went. They were able to chase the balloon in real time. Their predictions told us where it was going and they were only 1.6 miles from it when it landed. And they recovered the payload with tons of data and multiple cameras. They've got the GitHub project posted. They've got a video, a YouTube video posted. They got a picture of it sitting way up where you can see the, the curve of the earth from 110,000 feet. And the one of the comments in the post, I don't know if you, if you see this one, but yeah. this guy comes back. So round or flat, asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man, that's funny. <laughs> round or flat. It's really cool. So, the, so another guy went in here and posted, if you work on something like this again, let me know. I'm in Denver myself, but we, so he's speaking on behalf of Microsoft, have a pretty big office there, and I'm sure that some of us would love to participate. And so they're going back and forth. Yeah, we plan on doing it. They definitely want to do it again. They want to do it again in September or October when the winds are going to make it, when the winds are going to make it even harder. Sorry, they say generally in September or October, it's harder to do it when the winds make it even are blowing even more. And they want a balloon that's going to go uh, 100 miles or so in the winter. They got a few things they got to figure out before the next launch, but they dealing with both heat and cold, but they definitely are something that they want to end up doing. So the video that's is cool. really... I'm amazed. Like this, It blows my mind that you can put a balloon up to 110,000 feet and have it come down and it's only a mile and a half away. Well, no, they were only a mile and a half away. They were tracking it. And oh, they were chasing it. Gotcha. Down. Yeah, they were chasing it okay. and they were within a mile and a half of it when it landed. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. It's really slick though. Yeah, I see. Yeah, that makes sense. That's really cool. Hey, good pick, Michael. It's yeah, rad. He's got on the uh, on the GitHub page, it even shows the entire, all the infrastructure that he did and that they had to go through and get it set up. Radio transmission for it for up to 50 miles. So that probably, that's how they could track it. So they were using Arduinos. That's rad. Well, Michael, we will get a solo key sent out to you shortly and we'll be in touch to grab your address. Yep. Thanks we'll for sending, sending it in. It. We will be sending it via weather balloon. So make sure you get your tracker ready. <laughs> 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 yeah, we're going to have to get that one right to get it from the US to, uh, sorry, where did you say he was from? Sweden somewhere? Malmo, Sweden. Malmo, Sweden. There you go. Yeah, we might need to uh, time that one perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> Try not to take any airliners down while we're at it. Yeah, just pop it up in the jet stream. Yeah. Ciao. Nice. Maybe we'll send it by uh, ICBM or like some sort of space-based delivery system. There you go, Amazon. As a service? Huh? ICBM as a service? Yeah. Yeah. Amazon doing like space-based deliveries. That'd be pretty sweet. <laughs> nice. Cool, man. Hey, well, good, uh, good show. We covered some great news and things. Yeah, man. And um, 
We'll be back at it next week. Next week is, or I guess as people are listening to this, the big Microsoft Partner Conference is going on at Inspire up in uh, out in Las Vegas. And so yes. I know some things that are being announced. I know some things that are some controversial things that are going to be announced. And we hope to be able to cover those in our next show. Yeah, we'll see if they've Microsoft follows through with those and uh, we'll talk about them next week. <laughs> Until then, my lips are sealed. See ya. See you, dude. Did you like this episode? Please tweet about it and drop a five-star review in iTunes. Word of mouth recommendations are the most effective ways for us to grow the show. We'd really appreciate it. If you have a question for us, go to microsoftcloudshow.com slash questions, where you can submit it as text or record it as an MP3 or WAV file and provide a link so we can play your question on the show. Our theme music is brought to you by Keith Ritchie. For more information on Keith's music, head to music.kritchie.com. You can subscribe to us in iTunes and Google Play Store by searching for Microsoft Cloud Show or via RSS at microsoftcloudshow.com, where you'll also find show notes of each episode. You can also find us on Facebook searching for Microsoft Cloud Show or on Twitter at MS Cloud Show. And finally, sign up for our mailing list by heading over to our website and entering your email to interact with us, participate in upcoming interviews, and other cool stuff. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.